to day three of Too Close or Too Far, Setting Best Boundaries with Clients. Uh, Chelsea and I, again, will be your, your hosts, your facilitators. Okay, so same as usual, we'll do a little housekeeping intro, some review, uh, then we'll get into some new concepts. And today we'll do just one vignette um, and discussion at the end, and that'll be the plan. All right. Um, just as a reminder, our next and final date, day four, will be on October 27th, same time. Okay, so learning objectives for today. Um, we are going to talk through, again, different types of common, common boundary situations that can come up in your work with unsheltered individuals or folks with mental illness. Um, we're going to talk through a value identification and clarification. Uh, so naming three personal values or personal characteristics that impact the individual's experience of boundary setting in their work. Um, using two examples, we hope you'll be able to name why, when, and how to seek consultation when boundary clarification is needed, and explain a couple ways in which boundary setting practices may affect a professional's risk and experience of burnout. Uh, expectation setting, we you should expect to learn, practice, uh, reflection, um, there might be potential discomfort. Uh, today's topic for the vignette and for some of the concepts it, it centers around romance, which can be a difficult, um, a difficult boundaries theme to make sense and accept that it can occur. Um, and we'll be really working with the idea that it's really good to just try and not normalize uh, that it is a normal thing, but that it happens and. Um, it's something that we need to accept the reality of um, so that we can remain vigilant and practice reflection and consultation to ensure that any sort of countertransference feelings or romantic feelings, attraction feelings that ever arise between in our work with clients can be dealt with before they cause harm. Um, we, you can expect appreciation for your hard work and meeting during our discussion and again, sensitive content. Um, what not to expect, perfect or concrete answers that all our content will fit squarely within your agency, team policy, or role function, and we won't do breakout rooms. So we'll do a little review here, um, and you all have seen this. I'm gonna move through this a little bit quickly so we're not repeating ourselves too terribly much um, from the previous weeks. Um, but defining boundaries, we are uh, centering our definition for the purposes of this training series around creating safety uh, for you as a provider and your clients, communicating limits and needs, um, attaining clarity, knowing what to expect, and defining roles. Um, and boundaries are really important um, for emotional and physical safety, for staying client-centered, supporting clear communication and expectation, being trauma-informed, which we'll uh, move into a little more deeply today as part of our topic of new concepts, um, and for ethical reasons, um, a focus on boundaries and their communication and maintenance honors an inherent power imbalance that occurs in our work, and it protects our folks that are vulnerable because of that power imbalance and for, that are vulnerable for many other um, personal and systemic reasons. Um, Countertransference is a topic we've talked about a couple of times now, and it'll be a, a big feature of today as we talk through um, how to look for signs of uh, attraction occurring. Um, and um, I'll just pop there. Uh, so we've got uh, a list here of countertransference clues um, from sort of things that might feel really positive to things that feel kind of like negative 
and some that are quite neutral um, and just maybe have to do with the frequency of thinking or having feelings or sensations uh, related to someone or associations arising. Last week or two weeks ago, we talked through stigma and bias and why these are also really important and in uh, how we how we select, how we respond to our clients in general, um, but also how we um, understand uh, our subjectivity and our responses to them. Um, all of what we do, we are all we are all subject to stigma that exists in the world, and that can impact ha us having implicit or explicit biases. Um, and part of our work to um, ensure we're treating all of our clients fairly and doing the best job we can is to be aware of our biases, uh, to process them in a reflective context, um, ideally in supervision perhaps, um, and ensure they're not influencing our work or the boundaries we set and how we maintain them. Uh, last week, we also talked about burnout as well as other trauma responses, and we'll we'll talk through Briefly, and we'll share a link to a video that we highly recommend you watch on your own time. Uh, it's a TED Talk uh, from um, an author that writes about uh, her, her conceptualization of how, how providers like us might be impacted by uh, vicarious trauma um, and how, what are, what, how she sees certain symptoms of that response. So really cool concept. We'll get into that in a minute. But last week, we started with burnout. Um, our symptoms of burnout are emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and decreased personal accomplishment. And burnout is separate from this list here, um, which all burnout doesn't have to do necessarily with a reaction to trauma. Burnout can occur in any, you know, any part of your life, uh, not just work life, any instance where uh, you're under-resourced, maybe overutilized, over overextended, um, maybe aren't getting the types of support that you need to fuel, uh, to fill your cup and fuel your work and, or fuel whatever role you're in. Um, here we have vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress and compassion fatigue, uh, very overlapping concepts that are a little bit hard to differentially define, um, but they all have to do with our reactions to trauma. And that is trauma that our clients talk about. It is trauma that we see them going through. Um, or that we might observe truly firsthand. Um, and then it also has to do with uh, just the general, if you want to expand it out from just the client relationship, working within systems that um, are not trauma-informed, that, that just sort of inherently um, uh, oppress or um, create potentials for community trauma as well. All right, so some boundary skills that we talked about two weeks ago uh, were becoming self-aware. Uh, what feelings precede instances of neglect or overprotect? That should be an or there. Um, we talked through the dignity of risk and that continuum of neglect and overprotect and how when we are faced um, with countertransference or client risk, or we might have biases, that can all put us in one direction or the other, burnout as well. Um, and that we have we are going through all these concepts to help us have a really clear the clearest lens possible on how we are responding to our clients. And in this case, we were talking about um, where we might over intervene or do for more than we do for our clients more than we necessarily should or more than we can sustain. Um, we also talked about how to ground oneself in person-centered autonomy support uh, when experiencing these feelings of overprotect or countertransference. 
um, and explore. We also talked about how to explore experiences of bias, stigma, and how they've impacted us personally. We all uh, experience these things differently based off of our um, cultures of origin or the cultures that we're still in, what information gets filtered into our lives. Um, and let's see, we also talked about time management and brain management just a little bit. I don't feel like we got into this as deeply as we maybe could or should have, but there's just so much. <laughs> um, but we encourage you, or we're aiming to encourage you to be aware of when you're spending a lot of time on certain clients, um, thinking about them or working with them, and if that is um, possibly related to these other um, concepts that we've discussed. We also talked about radical acceptance as a skill to cope with uncertainty and empathic strain. It's what you can do when you are finding it very difficult to accept a client's level of risk or maybe some um, challenging behaviors they are engaging in to um, get their needs met with you um, or any any litany of things where it is out of your control, but you still need to do the best job you can. Radical acceptance is a tool you can use. All right. And then finally, the importance of consultation and consistency. So we gave you an assignment. Um, did anyone have uh, any sort of notice of reactions um, in a, a deeper way following our discussion for the past couple, well, for the past month, um, sort of building on day one and going into day two? Instances maybe where you have noticed you do too much or too little, um, and maybe where that is linked to countertransference or other uh, reactions to your clients. And you don't have to give a, a full example, but maybe if you've noticed some specific um, thoughts, feelings, or physiological sensations that have been coming up, uh, if you found it hard to notice these and this, is, <laughs> this isn't really clicking, if you, if you are finding that uh, you need more reflective opportunity to notice these things, just let us know in the chat what your experience has been. Very curious to hear. All right, we also, as an assignment, asked you to consider where boundaries may help you prevent burnout in your own work. So if anyone has reflections on that, um, where, where considering any of these ideas can help you set better boundaries to sustain your own work in a healthy way that is not compromising your um, job satisfaction or emotional state. These are complex questions, so I'll give folks a minute. We also asked you to list some instances where you can practice acceptance to manage the stress of your client's risk. Um, so if anyone found that they were able to uh, engage in that and do that, um, feel free to share. Love to hear. Hmm. You're commenting that you have a client had severe attention-seeking behaviors, perhaps some borderline personality disorder qualities, and you're catching yourself feeling frustrated. Um, thank you for sharing that and for your honesty. Uh, Part of, and the perfect example, part of the difficulty of the topic of boundaries is that we have to be honest with ourselves when we respond in ways we kind of maybe wish we had didn't, that we are told by schools that we went to or society or, or whatever, whatever ideas exist about doing this, this work that we should respond, you know, with with grace, with patience, with endless compassion and care, and it's just not real. It's just not possible. So the best thing we can do is to be honest about what reactions we're having and then work through them. So thanks for sharing that. Okay, so you're sharing, uh, you find radical acceptance very helpful when dealing with 
a young client with uh, suicidal ideation whom you see three times a week. Wow, yeah, that's really tough. If working with any any person of any age who um, you're worried about suicide risk, but especially someone young, um, and having that exposure a few times a week is a lot. I'm, I'm glad that's a help, been a helpful tool for you. You're saying I care too much about meeting the needs of some of my clients more than they do sometimes. Also an excellent uh, sort of summary statement of when we uh, emotionally sort of overinvest past where our clients do, um, and we might not be able to help that, that might just be a truth of our, our response to them. Um, it's then about making sure that is processed and we're not uh, behaving in that way <laughs> and that we are sort of walking alongside them, matching them in partnership. Okay, some other comments here. Client currently struggling with active addiction and feeling help, feelings of helplessness. Um, you're saying yes, but it is stressing because I need to meet with all clients. Yes, yeah. It can feel like an absolute pressure cooker and an impossible situation sometimes to do that. And sometimes it is impossible and that needs to be recognized. You're, you're commenting boundaries that I place um, uh, is setting a time every week, once a week to speak to a client. It constantly needs attention, so I let her know that I have a specific time block in the day to speak to her. This client used to take up a lot of my time, but these boundaries help me to minimize burnout. Amazing. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, time blocking and being firm with that, being consistent and direct, um, not being, you know, aggressive or angry, but or letting frustration come through, but just being clear. It's a great way around time, time blocking. That is a great way to. Uh, reduce the strain on you to to have a client have clear expectations about what they can and can't get from you, um, service and time wise. Um, yeah, it makes things it's hard to do and it can feel really scary to do, but uh, it's worth worth the effort. Okay, and then we have a comment. So someone was having trouble keeping check of their emotions, was having a bad day, tired, and was looking for an outlet. I didn't bother to be aware of what I was feeling till it was too late to be on top of it or you'll, you'll hurt someone or yourself. So it sounds like someone acted in a way they regretted that was maybe harmful perhaps to another person um, because of what was inside them that they were struggling with. And I, I think we have all certainly been there um, or on the precipice of that. Um, and this is why we we repeated over and over again the need for um, for supervision, for consultation, for self-reflective practice. And we're going to talk today just a little bit about just self-care. I'm not a huge fan of that term because I think it gets thrown around as like this thing that is going to make this work manageable and easy, easy and sustainable and that you can fend off the, all the trauma responses <laughs> with self-care. It can go a long way, but it isn't everything. Um, a lot of the things that would be necessary to make this work, uh, you know, uh, easier on all of us are out of our control. Um, has to do with things like funding and staffing um, and uh, legislation and policy. Um, so it's thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, it's real, people. You know, we are we uh, absorb so much uh, emotion from folks empathically, and we have our own natural reactions to clients as well and what they're going through. Um, and it can be a lot to sort through, and nobody is perfect. Okay, and then you're sharing, you even believe that coworkers and supervisors can cross boundaries. Yeah, yeah, we don't really get into the sort of like work, workplace um, relationship boundaries in this training series. It feels like a, di a little bit of a different training to me, um, and it maybe is something we'll approach down the road, but much of this is applicable, and we will talk a little bit about trauma-informed organizations today, less so on boundaries, but more so on 
how well anyway we'll get there thanks so much everyone for sharing it was really good to hear how you are sort of integrating and applying these things that we're learning and discussing they're they're not simplistic concepts a lot of these are really like tough to wrap even wrap your head around to talk about and then to apply um that's awesome good job everyone thank you so much Okay, so that um, that video that I was just mentioning um, is from Laura Lipsky, and this is her conceptualization um, that is very similar to that, like, vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue stuff. Um, she kind of lumps that all together into this trauma exposure response, and she has a book about it called Trauma Stewardship. Has anyone read that book or heard of that book? Um I don't usually have it sitting next to me when I do this training. Uh, we actually have a, a training that is done on trauma stewardship, and I can't remember the date on that, Chelsea, but you can maybe. I think it's upcoming. December. In okay. So if you want to look on our learning management system um, and search for that, you could register for that training if this is something you want to learn more about. Anyway, so her trauma exposure response, um, she breaks down sort of it into 16 um, facets of what a trauma exposure response can be for folks working, doing this line of work, doing any sort of helping profession. Um, and those 16 are feeling helpless and hopeless, a sense that one can never do enough, hypervigilance, diminished creativity, inability to embrace complexity, minimizing, chronic exhaustion and physical ailments, inability to listen, deliberate avoidance, dissociative moments, a sense of persecution, guilt, fear, anger and cynicism, inability to empathize, numbing, addictions, and finally grandiosity, like an inflated sense of importance related to one's work. So that's a lot. Um, that's why the book is great, because <laughs> it gets into these in greater details. But I really like her list here because it's just very human. Um, it really, uh, and it, it's not overly, um, this isn't clinical jargon. It's not scientific jargon. It's just describing what are, what are these things that people go to go through when they are in um, environments that are full of vicarious trauma um, or direct trauma. Um, the video that we have of hers, and I will have to dig up the link real quick, one second, and I will pop it in the chat. It's just a YouTube link. Um, it's about a 16, 17 minute video, and she's delightful and pretty funny um, and shares her own experience with going through this. And I think it's just really, I don't know. It Every time I see it, it sort of helps me uh, feel seen. <laughs> Or historically, when I did direct service, it helped me feel seen. Um, little doing trainings a little less. Um, well, we have less trauma exposure doing training. I, I think in general, this is uh, the model for a trauma exposure response. So just another way to consider how you are being impacted by your work. Um, and for the purposes of this training, we we ask you to look into it a little bit because. This can impact how you navigate boundaries with folks. I mean, so much in here, how could you see or maintain boundaries with about half of these occurring? Um, maybe some of them less so, like diminished creativity, perhaps isn't as necessary. Um, but the rest, absolutely critical. Um, and the biggest point that uh, Laura Lipsky makes is, is around, like, if you can't see what's going on, if any of this, like, numbing or dissociative moments especially are 
occurring or you're not able to embrace complexity, if you can't read the full situation, if you can't see yourself or feel yourself properly, you definitely won't be able to uh, feel your client empathically properly, and you won't be able to um, sort of discern and navigate uh, work effectively and sometimes in a way that can keep you safe and them safe. Um, so that's why this is so critical. All right. Trauma-informed organizations. Um, so trauma-informed care, uh, the very popular topic that it is, um, you know, I think we know that it it really revolves around creating uh, safety and containment, considering how people's lives have been shaped by trauma, uh, sort of destigmatizing certain symptoms or pathologies, um, or depathologizing pathologies, I should say, depathologizing symptoms or uh, diagnoses um, by understanding that, no, they probably were, in, they came from trauma, they originated from trauma. Um, and we need to look at people as whole people, not just um, diagnoses and symptoms. That's a piece of it. And then how to continue to work with people in a way that is sensitive to what they've been through, respects the adaptations they've made to get by in the world. Um, and uh, it's not the same thing as trauma treatment. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about trauma-informed care. Um, but uh, that aside, how how can an organization make it so you can do this trauma-informed care that has to do with you maintaining yourself um, and creating sort of safety for yourself and for your clients. Um, there's an argument that Samson makes wonderfully uh, and has, they have an entire toolkit, like many, many page document on how organizations or agencies providing services themselves can be trauma-informed. So not just at the individual provider level, if that makes sense. Um, so just looking at this uh, little table here, um, maybe we can start at the bottom because this is what we are, direct service providers. Um, the things that you can do, which you know from what we've talked about already, include self-care. Um, that includes obtaining mental health support as needed, utilizing team and supervisory support and consultation, and developing self-reflective processes with particular attention to one's own trauma history. So working in respect and not in sort of like, not with, um, not white knuckling it through uh, where our own trauma history, the things we've been through that have been really challenging, difficult or traumatic are impacting how we respond to clients and our well-being, um, that we actually address that and we make sure we're well um, and we're not being re-traumatized ourselves um, to the point where we can't do this work or be well. But then what else can an organization do? Right. Like your supervisor can do something. They can engage in reflective supervision. Uh, moving up the table here, um, they can uphold policies that support trauma informed work and work life balance. Uh, they can ensure training of staff in trauma informed care and they can balance staff caseloads of trauma intensive clients. So if you're a supervisor or a manager and you're asking your your workers, your your staff to do trauma-informed care, these are the things you need to do. You need to look at the policies that you have influence over or go up the line uh, to administration or executive leadership and talk, have conversations about what policies are trauma-informed. Is there enough PTO? Is there, uh, are there good resources like an EAP, an employee assistance, oh my gosh, plan, I can't remember what that stands for, free therapy and free uh, counseling for, for folks when they need it uh, that isn't just going through insurance. Are there good insurance options? Um, are there resources enough that are necessary for people to do their jobs? 
um, is there great clarity um, on what resources exist? And then uh, obviously including training um, and balancing staff caseloads, that's it's totally up to your discretion, um, but these are suggestions that you can likely have some control over. And now if you're an administrator in this training, um, it, which I'd be surprised if there are any, but maybe, maybe there, there are, uh, you can recruit, hire, and retain trauma-informed staff. So folks that embrace this approach uh, and have some exposure to it or know how to train in it. Um, and you can help break the cycle of trauma-influenced turnover. There is a massive amount of turnover occurring right now across all mental health like service providers. That is just, it's a thing. It's influenced by the pandemic. Um, and we can imagine that came from just the intensive strain, especially for field-based providers of going out in the field during COVID. That, that was a lot to deal with for you all. Um, and the fact that it's become easy and lucrative if you are able to, with whatever degree or training you have, to do telehealth services. Um, and so there's a migration away um, and teams are understaffed and it's really difficult. But when we're doing when we're thinking about trauma informed care and if you have the power as an administrator to consider this, um, it's really important that clients have continuity with their providers. Like they have likely the people who have been the, the most sort of disadvantaged or underserved, they're underserved because people keep leaving these jobs because they're hard. Um, so what can you do to try and encourage and maybe it's through morale, maybe it's through, I mean, things like, you know, work-life balance encouragement, maybe it's through having an excellent training program or um, finding ways to pay people more um, and give them more time to themselves, whatever it is. Uh, keeping staff will ensure that there's less of, uh, less trauma or broken sort of continuity of relationship for clients as well. So it's not only going to help your agency, it can actually, it's going to trickle down and help your clients' outcomes as well. Um, and we all know what it's like to work with someone who's just like completely disenfranchised, has met, you know, told their story a hundred times and is not really interested in getting to know you and the work that it takes to do that engagement. Um, and then knowing that <laughs> that staff might not stay there that long, it can be really tough. And some of this is natural to the field. Internship is a natural piece of the education for uh, certain degrees. And that's not going to be a permanent staff member. Um, so some of this is not avoidable, but it is an area to consider. All right. Developing mission values and policies that align with principles of trauma-informed care, ensuring, again, training at all levels and roles of the organization. So including executive leadership and including anyone who is at all like perhaps reception um, who is client facing. And finally, planning for uh, and preventing a plan for preventing and treating secondary traumatic stress with staff. So cult work cultures where it's kind of like put a tough face on, white knuckle it. We're all going through this. Um, it could be worse. Um, look at this client over here. Look how look what this staff person went through. These are not good. Um, we need to treat um, everyone's experience of trauma exposure very seriously and be real about its impacts and not have it be a competition for who can withstand the worst stuff. Um, so if you have the power to set that tone within your organization, you can do a lot of good by doing so. All right, let me see what comments are in the chat. A suggestion of a clear and supportive communication from the higher ups and not using sh shaming language in manager meetings. Exactly, yeah. It's not just like case managers and therapists who need to be treated you know, with kindness and compassion around what they're being exposed to, it's managers too. Managers often are caught in the middle. Um, 
and expected to be extremely tough and, uh, you know, beyond resilient to the demands put upon them and what they're told to then ask of their staff while they're also absorbing in reflective supervision all, all of the stories from their um, supervisees. It's a lot. It's a lot to carry. I mean, the pressures come from all sides at all levels of an organization. So things like teamwork, clear, as you're saying, clear and supportive communication, person that made that comment, um, clarity, boundaries, <laughs> that other training that we should make, um, having um, clear expectations, clear policies, lots of support, um, a, a non-shaming environment, all of that is really critical to sustaining this type of work. Okay. Um, we have a couple of resources that I will uh, just pop in the chat and we will post on this training's registration page. Um, we have a self-care tool. I'm not going to define self-care. I think we know what it is. Um, but Patricia Burke created the Comprehensive Self-Care Plan form. Uh, this is something you can do if you want to explicitly go through and write down what can be your self-care activities in a personal and professional um, capacity across a number of domains. So that's a worksheet that I'll, I'll post once I stop talking um, the professional quality of life scale. This is a psychometric tool to measure compassion, satisfaction, burnout, and secondary traumatic stress. So if you're feeling some of these things that we've been talking about, but you're not sure which applies and you want to understand it better and get some, get some, um, feedback through an assessment, this is a great option for you. And I will also pop the link to this because it's free and it's online. We don't have a handout for it. Um, but it's something you can go through and see. See what you learned about what's what's going on for you um, in your experience of your work. Yeah, it's a well-researched tool. It's evidence-based um, and great thing if you're a manager to maybe use with your team and include in supervision if people are feeling open to talking about these um, the impacts of their work in this way. And finally, um, values clarification. So I'm not going to spend much time on this because I think I'm at the end of my um, little time block here. Um, but sort of we've talked through a number of strategies to make this work workable, to identify what's going on for us internally, um, to we've talked through a few different ways of conceptualizing um, when we're doing too much or too little and why and why we have certain emotional reactions to clients, how to sift through those. Um, and we've talked about a trauma-informed uh, work today, but values is something that's a little bit different, and it's often a good area to focus on to kind of come back to the center, come back to the origin of why we are doing this work in the first place. This gets lost in the face of those things like a trauma exposure response or burnout. Um, we don't, we might not have our finger on the pulse of our why anywhere nearly, nearly as clearly as we did when we were. Uh, new to the field or or at times when we're feeling refreshed, when we're feeling supported in our work, when we're not feeling overburdened or under-resourced. Um, so doing a values clarification, I mean, it can't solve everything, right? It can't solve when um, your caseload has doubled in size, uh, but it might, it can help you make decisions about how you're, you're going to navigate this work and how you want to show up for your clients uh, when you are doing the absolute best you can in difficult circumstances. Um, and values clarification. So values, we're defining them as your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being. Um, they're not about what you want to get or achieve. and They are about how you want to behave or act on an ongoing basis, how you want to treat yourself, others, and the world around you. So the commitments we make to how we act um, and where that comes from within us. Um, 
there's a you know I, I don't have the perfect adage in my mind right now, but uh, actions speak louder than words. I don't know. There we go. There's one. <laughs> um, what what we do, how we embody what we believe in, having congruency in that is something that gives us uh, is something that resources us. Um, it adds to our cup. It can help us uh, sustain difficult circumstances, be resilient, be able to carry on and carry through when there's incongruency. If you've ever worked in an environment where the values that you hold personally didn't line up with what what you were seeing maybe as the values or mission of the organization, that might be a good example of where when that isn't lining up, it's difficult. So when we lose sight of how we want to behave personally or professionally, we feel like crap um, and exhausted usually. Um, and then I guess any of these other things that we've talked about that could come marching in and mingle our work even further. So having awareness of values can be a critical tool in um, preventing that. And we have a uh, values clarification worksheet that I can also add that handout to the chat. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, yeah, the values clarification worksheet, I believe that comes from Russ Harris. It's in, uh, it comes from acceptance commitment therapy. So uh, highly recommend that resource as well as the others. Um, and I'm really glad that you mentioned having incongruent values between your own personal values and your work values or the values uh, embodied by your organization or team, because that's kind of what we're talking about with this slide here. You know, we talked about, Elizabeth talked about how organizations can be trauma informed. Um, and here we're talking about how can organizations have supportive communication around boundaries? Um, because from my per or my professional experience, I have worked in multiple settings with uh, very different policies, very different levels of boundaries, uh, boundaries that were kind of uh, given to the staff by the organization. And that can be kind of difficult to suss out, okay, if this is different from my values, how am I going to behave? Um, so all that to say, uh, figuring out how to be supportive with your colleagues about boundary issues is vital for each of our success, our ability to move forward through the discomfort of a boundary crossing or a boundary, uh, potential boundary violation. Um, and so what does a supportive organization look like? And if you check out the chat, Elizabeth just shared some of the uh, handouts that she had referenced, so be sure to download those. Um, so a supportive team, is going to communicate about boundaries uh, by being proactive. Um, so that means folks are uh, responding to what is going on with the boundaries as they arise, being proactive about it, not avoiding. Um, a supportive communication around boundaries really is about prevention. We want to be able to prevent a potential boundary issue from becoming a boundary issue. We want to be self-reflective with our organization, with our teammates, uh, so that we can understand our own emotional responses, our own maybe thought responses, and 
create a little bit of space between our reactions and what we uh, do with our clients, how we behave and respond. Um, and so working on being able to communicate these things in a supportive way can prevent things from getting out of hand and feeling overwhelming. Um, a supportive uh, a supportive communication around boundaries also means that it feels like a safe space uh, to be able to talk about what's going on. And, you know, we mentioned the word normalizing at the beginning of the training today. And one thing about normalizing is we're talking about like the emotions that come up and the thoughts that come up. We can't control our emotions necessarily as they arise, right? What we can control is what we do with those emotions. And so being able to normalize that, oh, you might have a reaction that you don't particularly like or that is not particularly helpful, normalizing that that happens can be really helpful because then it creates space so that we can deal with whatever is coming up and we don't have to deal with it alone. We can deal with it in community because everyone goes through the, a lot of this stuff. And so there's a lot of resources within our teams if it's a supportive environment. Also, we wanna be strengths-based. Um, we always wanna be that for our clients, but we also wanna be that within our team. We wanna highlight each other's strengths, you know, help build each other's confidence, each other's understanding, um, really going for this, you know, group empowerment. And so focusing just on the negative can be really uh, difficult for folks to uh, respond to. But if they're feeling appreciated and recognize that they are both uh, someone who has strengths and challenges, can uh, remove that barrier uh, for progress. Um, and then uh, finally, collaborative teamwork. So um, I think we mentioned the team approach to caseloads pr uh, previously. So a supportive team uh, communicating around boundaries will be able to work with the different team members to address issues that might arise. So for instance, if you are feeling overly, like you're spending too much time on a client, um, and you share that client with other team members, you could have a collaborative approach to communicating about how you're doing with the, the workload, how you're doing with the um, emotional load of the your uh, feeling from the client. And so being able to kind of tag team, you know, I uh, have this other client issue, can you take lead with this client this time? That can be really supportive and, and help people move forward. On the other hand, we have avoidant, um, approaches, which unfortunately I've been in, in a team environment where this felt like the case, where um, it there's more fear about bringing up boundary issues. Um, there might be a stigma being perpetuated, or it might be seen as a taboo, which really goes into what we're talking about today. Um, so for instance, like attraction feelings, if you're having attraction feelings for a client and there's no one you can talk to about it without feeling that um, where it's feeling way too taboo or there's um, stigma associated with the uh, 
thought of having an attraction to this type of individual based on something about them, their identity, their mental health status, this can create barriers to communicating about what's really going on underneath that attraction feeling, which likely has to do with a bunch of other stuff going on. It's not clear cut. Um, and avoidant, also avoidant, uh, if teams are communicating in an avoidant manner, there also might be gossip and judgment. Um, when I worked in the prison system, this happened a lot about uh, if there were boundary issues, there was a lot of vilification of the uh, folks who were crossing boundaries, which on one hand, doesn't seem like a bad thing, right? Yes, we're mad at the people who do the things that are wrong. On, you know, it seems very simple. But on the other hand, if that person never had the ability to check in before things got really wrong, then how are we going to prevent this from happening again? And so um, I hope that makes sense, kind of this difference between a supportive and avoidant uh, team or organization. So I wonder if anyone would like to share in the chat, what what would you do if a colleague is talking to you about a boundary crossing? And, and what would you do if that makes you uncomfortable? Um, we would love to hear what would be your first response? How, how could you use supportive methods to um, communicate with your colleague about this boundary crossing? And I'll give the Zoom pause so people have time to consider the question. Again, that's what do you do when a, when a colleague talks to you about a boundary crossing? On one hand, it can seem we can think of it in a very uh, all or nothing state of mind. You know, we report them, we, you know, go all the way zero to 100 reaction. What are some other ways we can react? Who crossed it? Client? I mean, I don't know if you're asking me that or if that's what you would ask the person, but either way, it's a good question. Ask more. Ask more about what's going on. <laughs> you're asking me. Yes, I mean, we're, I'm, I don't have a perfect instance in mind. Um, perhaps they've crossed the boundary, actually, with the client. Um, I see a comment. I know it might be uncomfortable for me, but those feelings have to do with me, not the crossing. So I need to keep this in mind and be calm and help the situation and not make it worse. Cool. I'm trying to internalize what you're saying. So if you as the colleague or as you as you, you might feel uncomfortable hearing about this boundary crossing. And so you might want to keep that in mind and calm yourself and help the situation and not make it worse. So checking in with your own feelings, that could be helpful. Uh, consult with the supervisor if possible, yes. Um, yeah, you could consult with somebody, right? Um, you could consult with your supervisor, this happened and I'm not sure what to do. Um, but great response here. I know you had a good intent as you care a lot for client, however, due to HIPAA, due to being equal to all clients, due to boundary training, this is why. I like that you're staying strength focused. You had a positive intent, right? Um, I think that's beautiful because we're trying to connect. Uh, we're trying to talk to our colleague about it before it becomes a violation, right? And, um, reminding them that there are these other factors that go into play. I would mention it to the staff, okay? Um, 
I would reassure my colleague that it is natural to have these emotions. They are human. I would suggest to colleague to talk with supervisor, make sure to set boundaries with the client and use some compassion. Yes, I'll advise them that it will interfere with the treatment plan. I've told others that while I appreciate them confiding in me and opening up, I do not want to engage in the discussion reminding them of topics that are not appropriate for the workplace. That sounds like perhaps they're um, maybe crossing your boundary or maybe talking about something personal. And I think that's a great example of, you know, how to set a very clear boundary about what you are willing to talk about with your colleagues and not. Um, great. And so if now the question is, if this includes reports of unethical behavior, what do you do with that information? So if, before we were talking about when a colleague talks to you about a boundary crossing, not really qualifying whether that's unethical, but what if it is, it goes into the unethical point, what can you do? And I think I'll, I'll answer this for us. We can uh, check in with our supervisor about that unethical behavior and, and go from there. Um, these are important things to notice and try to support each other on uh, when it comes to having supporting peers in this work. You want to be able to both, you know, highlight those strengths, maybe provide some more uh, correct information. And if it's leading into unethical territory, talk to somebody else um, higher up in your organization, potentially your supervisor. Um, let's see, I see another comment here. As a colleague, I was open to hearing and exploring what may have led my colleague to cross the boundary. Explore also what feelings led to sharing with me in the first place. Suggest identifying plan for addressing future risk and prevent it and discuss how to address it with supervisor due to liability if applicable. Awesome. So you're open to hearing and exploring what is going on and what happened before. I mean, that's really helpful. That's, that's helping your colleague with a self-reflective practice. Um, and then also, you know, discussing how to address it with a supervisor. Um, I think that's beautiful. So we talked about most of these types of boundaries. Today, we're going to talk about attraction, which we mentioned a few times already. Um, and you know, we did talk about kind of a friendship type of attraction in our previous vignette, um, but today we're going to talk about romantic attraction. Um, so what do we mean by attraction? I'm sure we all have an idea of what uh, we mean, but just to get on the same page, we've got uh, two types of attraction we're talking about. We're talking about clients feeling attraction towards workers and workers feeling attraction towards clients. Both of these are influenced by having overall compatibility with the other person and having common interests and backgrounds that can influence this uh, occurring. Um, when clients are feeling attraction for workers, there might be traumatic and or sexualized transference going on. Traumatic transference has to do with um, trauma and being trauma informed, uh, understanding that when people experience violence it, uh, or trauma, it impacts their entire, it impacts them holistically, we could say. Um, and the behaviors that people engage in after trauma might be a way to survive, even if these behaviors aren't helpful in the long term. So that could be contributing to this attraction feeling the client is experiencing. 
Um, sexualized transference just has to do with having feelings of attraction, romance, things like that um, for their worker. Um, this can be influenced by feelings of safety and trust with a worker, you know, um, when I'm sure a lot of us can imagine when you're in a vulnerable situation where you don't feel safe, where you don't feel you can trust many people, when you find someone who you can trust um, and feel safe with, that can really, you know, skew things a little bit and how you view that person based on your previous experiences. So that's something to keep in mind. When workers develop attraction feelings for clients, in addition to that compatibility, you know, we can think about, I believe it was Ian and Chase, their friendship kind of attraction. There was common interests and backgrounds. They had both experienced being unhoused and, um, you know, there may have been some counter-transference going on where the worker is uh, something that the client does evokes something from their past and if feelings occur. And these can be romantic attraction feelings. Uh, another thing that could be happening is the over-identification. We also saw that with Ian and Chase, um, you know, really kind of seeing that uh, the client as uh, living in a way that you really identify with. So you might over uh, over assume that you know what they're going through. And then um, in finally, there's a replicating caretaker relationships from personal life, if applicable. So, for instance, if a worker had a caretaking relationship in their personal life and it kind of influences their caretaking relationship with their client, that could lead to some attraction feelings. So why, you know, I talked at the beginning about supportive communication around boundaries on your team. And the reason that this matters so much in general and also specifically to me is because in order to prevent boundary violations, which I would say that uh, crossing any sort of intimate line with a client is a violation, preventing that really uh, requires that people are able to talk about the beginning of that attraction, i.e. the clues, the um, like the counter-transference clues, any red flags, which we'll get into in a second. But um, the reason this matters is really well summarized here by Dr. Andrea Salenza, who is a leading expert in sexual boundary violations. And this is what she has to say. And this, keep in mind this almost impulse we have to vilify those who cross these boundaries. Keep that in mind. It is a real impulse. I've had it too. But think about it from this way. So the idea that we can get rid of bad actors engaging an us versus them kind of polarization is a defensive fantasy. We know that even when a violator is exiled, the problem does not go away. Tragically, and this is not a fantasy, the transgressors risk ruining their career, ostracization, and expulsion from their professional community, rendering it too risky to, for them to reveal themselves, even when the boundary crossings are relatively mild and not yet sexual. This creates a necessity for secrecy and an inability to get consultation or any kind of help. And then she goes on to say, one of the troubling aspects of trying to address this problem is how punitive and hostile we are towards the transgressors, regardless of their motivations, context, or personal dynamics. 
It is also not helpful in providing an atmosphere where practitioners can turn to each other when they get into trouble. There's so much shame and judgment. This hostile culture renders the problem unspeakable, leaving our colleagues dangerously alone, trying to deal with the problem when they feel over their head and soon it will be too late. We don't want anybody to feel over their head. We want folks to feel comfortable bringing up issues when they're still mild, when they're still precursors to what could really have a negative impact on this person individually for their career and their life and all of that, but also on the client. We're wanting to prevent this happening to the client. And so if we ostracize and vilify any suggestion that this uh, feeling only happens if you're like the bad guy, then we don't leave any room to prevent it from happening. And I and feel very strongly about this because I worked in the prison system where in my, uh, how long was I there? Like three years there, I knew three social workers who were locked out for over-familiarity. So to me in that system, you're not able to talk about what's going on and things get way out of hand and prevention is next to impossible because that supportive communication around these issues isn't available. So. Um, yeah, it's a little intense, but I uh, I hope that uh, I hope that helps to uh, open your mind about how to address these things before they become a problem. So we talked about countertransference clues, which are a great opportunity to reflect and figure out what's really going on within you that's impacting your reaction to your clients. Um, and by within you, I mean within your past history. Um, some other red flags that might come up are feeling uneasy or feeling anxious. Um, certainly, if you are keeping secrets, that's a red flag, right? We had, I believe it was still Ian and Chase. Don't, you know, I might be wrong because <laughs> I get some of these confused, but they, uh, the worker was keeping a secret from his supervisor about the gift cards, if you remember that scenario. And that's a red flag, right? If you have to keep a secret, then something isn't right. So I would love for other people to chime in in the chat. What are some potential red flags you might notice if you're getting too close to a client? I have some examples I was thinking about. So one red flag, and this could be a red flag, just imagine it. It doesn't have to be your own experience or whatever. Giving a client your personal cell number. Yes, exactly, right? Unless that's part of your work policy that you get to use your personal cell or something. Yes, that would be a red flag. Anxiety, having, you know, an increase in anxiety. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, maybe more of a clue, but that's something to investigate. Getting too personal. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're sharing too much about yourself more than the client is or getting uh, talking about things that maybe aren't resolved we discussed that in a previous session client invites you to their birthday party so that might be uh you know we're thinking of red flags for us a sign that we're getting too close maybe that could feel like a red flag if they invite you. To me, I see that as an opportunity to clarify boundaries, you know, talk about, I really appreciate that you want me to be there, but because we're in this helping relationship, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to go to a personal thing. Um, however, I would love to hear about it afterwards, you know, that kind of thing. 
spending too much time in their company beyond the session. Uh, so yeah, just having too much time or just a higher amount of time with clients versus another, feeling nervous, feeling over-involved. Yeah, that's a great thing to look out for. If, um, if you're getting into way more than the goals that you and your client are working on, that could be a red flag. Accepting gifts from a client, that could be a red flag. Different teams might have different policies about that, which I believe Elizabeth talked about in a previous session. So yeah, excellent. Great. Uh, giving a gift. Yeah. So giving a gift that could, or even having that feeling of, I want to give a gift that could be a red flag too. Client wants to know what type of car you drive or want to walk you to your car. That's yeah. That seems like a opportunity to discuss with your client, uh, some boundary clarification about what kinds of personal, uh, information you're willing to share. And, um, and also, you know, might have to come up with some sort of boundary clarification response to walking you into your car. Like, I appreciate it. I prefer to walk alone. Something, you know, that's probably not the best response, but we could come up with something better. Awesome. Thanks so much, everyone. Okay, so what do we do? All right. So we know we're having some. Oh, and I did want to share some other things that I thought of for the red flags. And you don't have to go back. We'll just stay on this slide, Elizabeth. But um, you might have a romantic dream about a client. That's kind of a red flag. That's something we can't control what happens in our dreams or having maybe butterfly feelings, feeling excited, um, noticing yourself behaving in a flirtatious manner, um, sharing personal information, meeting outside of work. So a lot of what you all were already saying. So what do we do when we start to hone in on something's not quite right here in this dynamic. The first step, and this is just a framework um, that has been developed for managing this particular feeling. And um, what we want to do is start with noticing, which is what we've been talking about this whole time and why we talk about these clues and um, red flags. We want to note what's going on. And then the next step is facing up to it personally. And this is all about really accepting what's going on. I had this weird dream about a client and I feel embarrassed and shame about it, you know, and that's what's going on. Like really accepting what's literally happening um, and being able to face it. Um, and then we reflect on it and figure out a way to process and manage our reactions in uh, consultation with others. So this can be with your colleagues, it can be with your supervisor, it could be with a therapist, it could be with like a case consultation group you're a part of. We have a case managers learning exchange where you could do this, by the way. Um, you know, the, and so using all of that, you can then formulate a plan that works uh, for your client's benefit and re-figure out what the client goals are and what's going on that's getting in the way of that and how do we get a game plan going to get back on track and so this can be really um challenging you know it looks easy it's a chart flow chart anyone could do that but it's it you know facing up to what's going on and talking to somebody else about it can feel uh nerve-wracking and everyone's been there and 
a lot of the feelings and reactions, immediate reactions we have are very much shared by others. And so it's really helpful to get support in going through this process. Um, next, I wanted to touch on dual relationships. And so if you are someone who is under a code of ethics, like if you're a social worker or a psychologist or any other profession that has this code of ethics, you might be familiar with the term dual relationships. The definition, one definition is uh, a dual relationship is when professionals engage with clients or colleagues in more than one relationship, whether social, sexual, religious, or business. And dual relationships are, you know, it depends in Los Angeles County, they can be avoidable for the most part. Sometimes in small communities, it can be more difficult. Um, you know, we talked about Ian and Chase and you seeing each other at the bar and how that could be getting into kind of a weird dual relationship where they have the, the party scene and then they have their um, helping relationship that can be really confusing and confuse the um, treatment. Um, so dual relationships are unethical when they're likely to interfere with the social worker's exercise of professional discretion. Um, and you can replace social worker which, with whatever role you're in. Um, they're unethical when they interfere with your exercise of impartial judgment, when they exploit clients, colleagues, or third parties, um, and when they harm clients, colleagues, or others. So types of dual relationships are listed on the right. You know, there's intimate relationship, uh, relationships for personal benefit. So these might uh, lead to monetary gain for the provider or goods and services, useful information, um, kind of when you're mm, putting a bit of emotional labor on your clients to help you with something that's engaging in kind of a dual relationship. Um, there's also emotional and dependency needs, extending relationships with clients, promoting clients' independence, um, confusing personal and professional lives, sometimes reversing roles with clients. We've talked about that before, where maybe the client is doing a little caretaking of you, and that's, you know, not what we want out of the relationship, uh, this helping relationship. Uh, dual relationships can also look like altruistic gestures, like performing favors, providing non-professional services, giving gifts, being extraordinarily available, like we were talking about before, providing your cell phone number, letting them walk you to your car, providing any kind of information um, beyond what is necessary or helpful for your client and in your client's best interest. Um, and dual relationships can occur in unanticipated circumstances, like we talked about with Ian and Chase being at these community events together, um, you might, you know, belong to the same church as a client, have mutual acquaintances. These are opportunities where dual relationships can occur. Um, and so just something to keep in mind that uh, we want we want to avoid dual relationships as much as we can. We want to keep focused on our clients' needs and um while remaining empath empathic or empathetic and um, figuring out the best boundaries to maintain uh, in order to help our clients with what they need. So there's that. 
All right, well, we're almost done with this section and then we'll get into our vignette. Um, just wanna mention briefly that uh, there can be some problematic reactions to boundary strain um, that can harm the working relationship and that can also increase the risk of a sexual boundary violation. Um, and so one category on the left in the yellow reactions that can harm a working relationship would be uh, if you are self-protective or defensive. Um, this might be responding to a client request for contact with, this is therapy and we're here to work for your benefit. There's no point in coming here otherwise, you know, kind of not really meeting that client where they are or thinking about their needs, a bit defensive. Um, moralizing omnipotent reactions can look like kind of the superiority um, saying something like therapy is not for being comforted or for socializing, kind of being a little bit judgmental about how a client's um, behavior with therapy is not at, uh, correct or, you know, kind of just di these create distance between you and the client um, in a way that can be harmful. Um, the reactions with increased risk of sexual boundary violation are a sense of neediness or over-identification, which we talked about a little bit before with the over-identification aspect, and a feeling of overprotective anxiety. So the neediness, over-identification, you might be at risk for seeking to get needs met through the helping relationship if there's no other support in your life. Um, and with over-identification, you might feel overwhelmed by the client's pain influenced by your own personal issues. Um, for overprotective anxiety, this is when you're going beyond the norm. You're reacting to feelings of anxiety or concern for clients by offering supports that were not usual in your practice, um, such as providing opportunities for contact between you know, more contact than uh, you are able to provide to other clients, um, you know, an increase in touch or hugging, giving personal information, maybe having a parental feeling over your client. So these are just things to notice, other red flags that um, can uh, confuse boundaries and, and have an, uh, uh, create an opportunity to clarify those boundaries further. All right, so uh, to wrap things up, we just wanted to revisit some quotes from Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. I forget, I know she has two middle names. Um, and so what she says about trauma stewardship is to be an effective trauma steward, it's important to know where our own self ends and another's self begins. That's just the whole thing about boundaries, isn't it? When we speak up for people or creatures or environments that are unable to speak up for themselves, we may gradually lose the ability to distinguish their voices from our own. If we don't pay careful attention, our feelings of identification and responsibility may increase to the point that we experience their anguish in a debilitating way. So um, if we are paying careful attention, then there is an opportunity to not let all these things get super debilitating. Um, and so hopefully that connects things with what we're talking about. And I think we can move into our vignette. Okay, so we have Kayla, who is an outreach worker, and Scott, who is her client. Um, so Kayla is a 
46-year-old outreach worker in spa form, soft form, four. Um, her team is working remotely apart from outreach. Kayla moved to LA in early 2020, and the pandemic has made it hard to build local community, and she feels lonely. So this is a vignette we wrote during the pandemic. Just pretend like we're back there for the purposes of this vignette. Some of the stuff I think is still applicable. <laughs> um, Scott is Kayla's 47-year-old client who until recently was residing in an Echo Park Lake encampment that was set to be swept. A protest is scheduled for the weekend. The day before the protest, Kayla tries to talk to her team about the importance of protecting the encampment. She also highlights being impressed by Scott's organizing and says he has a lot of potential. The teammate responds by saying the only time he helps someone is if he can get drugs from them. And Kayla feels shut down and stop sharing, feel, sharing feeling even more and stop sharing feeling even more alone than before. When Kayla brings Scott up in individual supervision, her supervisor tells her that since Scott is doing so well, she should be refocusing her time on other clients with higher needs. Kayla shows up at a protest at the protest on her day off to protect the encampment. She doesn't want Scott to feel alone like she does and hopes that he notices her there. Scott notices Kayla and approaches her with a big smile. He opens his arms for a hug and Kayla accepts it. Kayla finds herself wishing she could move Scott in with her with the encampment under threat. So do we get all that? Oh, very dense one. All right, so some starting questions. Let's start with the second question. What are Kayla's signs of getting too close? She is over-involved, meeting him on her day off, visiting client after hours. Uh, Kayla wanting to move Scott in with her, so that, that um, cognition or feeling. Protesting on her day off and wanting to be noticed. Okay, hugs, the hug. Advocating too much for him, hugging, wanting to move in, the need for him to recognize her or notice her there, countertransference. Let's go to the bottom question. What's going on with the team communication? She has a couple of interactions with her teammates, including her supervisor. Um, what's occurring there? I'm seeing loneliness, her emotions being shut down. They are closed-minded. I think you mean the, the teammates. They're not being supportive, no help, avoidant, no reflective supervision at all. Right. So it's interesting because we could interpret Kayla having the emotional response she does to their sort of shutdowns and brush-offs and saying you should focus on other clients. Um, as a sign of getting too close, but what else do we we know about Kayla? She's having a hard time. She's feeling isolated and lonely. How do we tell the difference between um, what she's experiencing personally um, and having that inform her reactions uh, or countertransference informing her reactions or attraction forming her reactions? How do we tell the difference? And we, of course, can't fully know the difference. It's a hypothetical scenario. Okay, ask her and present it to her. Yeah, so what could a teammate have done differently? What could the supervisor have done differently? Because clearly, I guess that's a bit of a rhetorical question. It's really hard to tease these things apart. They're very interwoven. Um, her loneliness is impacting the fact that she has attraction. It's impacting her reactions and how, what she's now going to share and not share with her teammates. 
communication. What could uh, Kayla have done when her supervisor or teammates sort of shut her down? What would an ideal response have been? What options would she would she have? What what could you do in that situation if you're um, if you're not experiencing the support or the opportunity to share something that you're you're concerned about sharing? Use an I statement. Bring it up. Yep, say it. Find a person who's safer, perhaps, and start with them. Yeah. Go to a higher source. Yeah. Come up with a plan and seek advice elsewhere. Yeah, maybe take it outside the team. See if there's any possibility for further consultation. Maybe suggest other support network groups and settings. Yeah. Here's EAP. Great suggestions. Explore more around the issue. Look at others, other feedback. Okay. How could self-care impact the trajectory of her boundary management? So separate from just like dealing with the team being not supportive, how could self-care impact how she navigates boundaries from here on? She would focus more, more on her own issues. Okay. She should work more. She should work on building her own personal relationships so she doesn't feel lonely and need to move clients in with her. Yeah. Um, right. So it's it's sort of the things that we know our clients need for wellness and stability. We need them too. We need we need support. We need community. Um, Isolation is not good for anyone, and we all figured that out probably at one point in the past two years. Um, if it, some probably more so than others. Or we learn to appreciate what we do have in terms of um, loved ones and support. Finding joy in her life, not filling the void, addressing her transition, loneliness, establishing support. She would be able to see and be more objective, right? So any self-reflective process, any any act of self-care might help open her eyes. So wow, I'm having a hard time here. I'm I need to evaluate. Like, am I seeing things clearly? Am I look? Do I have a maybe a depressed lens on right now? Am I not able to? Um, use the the right judgment um, in certain situations emotionally that I would otherwise be utilizing. Okay, alrighty. So, is there a dual relationship at play? Yes. Uh, what what dual relationships do you see? I think I see more than one. So, caretaking. So, a, a, a dual relationship might be she is his outreach worker and also she's extent maybe doing. Uh, for too much and moving into caretaking a little bit. Okay. Um, hugging. Oh gosh. They have a hugging relationship. I'm not <laughs> trying to think of a good term for this. Um, uh, an uh, affectionate friendship, maybe at this point. She's spending time with client like a friend. Sure. So friend moving towards friendship over responsibility, um, romantic relationship. Okay. There's also this interesting like co-activism thing that's going on. And Chelsea talked earlier about commonalities and familiarity being sort of like the, you know, a very normal like thing that's going to happen. And not to, not to vilify that at all, because it can be a wonderful way to relate to the people we're serving, um, to have commonalities and to have familiarity. It's often really helpful for building rapport. But it's also, um, you know, if, if not sort of um, if there's a, some if other factors are present to have that move towards uh, attraction, it's something that has to be looked at. When we have a lot in common with our clients, we need to look at that just as closely as when we have nothing in common with them. OK, they both feel alone, feeling victimized. OK, 
All right, so the plot thickens. Um, this is the scenario continued. So the encampment is swept and Scott moves into an encampment, into an encampment near Kayla's apartment in East Hollywood. It's difficult to have private conversations in Scott's new location. They start meeting at a cafe by Kayla's apartment building. One day Scott meets the restroom while they're at the cafe. The cafe staff will not let him use it. Kayla has no idea where a public bathroom is nearby and offers him her own bathroom since it's so close and she trusts him. Kayla and Scott begin meeting for visits in her apartment now once a week, and she welcomes the change in environment because of recent bouts of insomnia and subsequent fatigue. And we're talking about her, her insomnia and subsequent fatigue. In supervision, Kayla gets feedback from her supervisor regarding a missing progress or missing progress notes. Kayla hasn't known how to summarize recent sessions and has been putting off paperwork related to Scott. A few weeks pass and she begins to ensure she looks her best for his visits, telling herself that her looking attractive for him might inspire him to keep working at his goals. One Friday, she goes out with friends, she's got friends now, uh, for a sunny happy hour drink outside. Three cocktails later, Kayla can't keep Scott off her mind, and after her third drink, she texts him to meet at her apartment, and he ends up spending the night. Okay, lots to take in there. So we have a progression um, that starts with some pragmatic concerns. Um, Scott moves. Uh, it's hard to have conversations. There's the need for a restroom and the reality of uh, being extremely hard to find places to use the restroom if you were unhoused or if you were just out and about in L.A. County and can't um, sort of buy your spot in, in, in an establishment. That's a reality uh, we all face. And then we have uh, Kayla starting to not be well. She's missing sleep and feeling tired. She started to skip doing some notes because she doesn't know what to write. Um, and then we've got her going out. We've got her uh, minding her appearance more than she did in the past for him, hoping to motivate him and going out for drinks with friends and then um, deciding to meet up with him. Let's move to the questions. So. Right. I'll look through your comments first because it's just a lot to sort of take in. It's, it's actually a lot to verbalize. Um, and I can admit it's it makes me feel uncomfortable to verbalize. And we are trying to suggest to have an open mind and imagine taking on a supportive stance. And so I can be transparent and say I would if I were in that situation and hearing her story, I would have to um, set aside and shelve my feelings of discomfort um, and fear um, and uh, concern and just general like uh, to be able to listen and deal with the situation. Um, any of us would, and it's tough to do. So this is a difficult, difficult potential scenario. All right, what do we got here? So she's already crossed the boundary. She needs to be fired and can no longer serve the client. Um, okay. Uh, this is extremely inappropriate. Uh, Cross all ethical lines. Unethical. We got a wow. Um, she needs to remove herself professionally. If she still has her job, encourage her to contact HR benefits. She has totally lost all perspective, all perspective about a client relationship. Um, so let's go to our questions. What problematic reactions to boundary strain did you notice? And we have our list here. We've got self-protective, defensive, moralizing, omnipotent, 
neediness over identification and overprotective anxiety. What did you see any of those in there? And I know we only talked about them briefly. Chelsea did a great job explaining them. Um, and it is, it's not necessary that we, we have to label um, what's occurring here, but these are great ways to um, see themes um, because they're, they're, they start earlier on uh, before they grow into extremely unethical behavior. Okay, we've got some neediness, 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 over-identification, yeah. Got it. I wonder a little bit about some self-protective defensive responses um, and her sort of shutting down. She uh, she doesn't um, integrate the the feedback that's poorly given from her colleagues, um, but she doesn't choose to integrate it. She she mentally defends against it. Okay, I was well, going to say too, Elizabeth, a little bit of overprotective anxiety, just really yeah. worrying about Scott and you know having that kind of consume her, wanting him to be okay. Right, right. She needs as much from him as she is concerned for him. Kind of both are occurring. Right. Very good point. Not processing the real issues. Hers. Yeah. Okay. So you're answering the next question. What could have saved the situation? Um, where did we need to intervene? Where or not we? But where? What are some key points, and what could have occurred to? save the situation. And we can think further back if you like, um, but even even here, you know, at all of these bullets, is, is there one where, you know, things still could have been turned around? Maybe it's at the restroom point. I got to tell you, like I have been out and about and I did direct service in New York City and that's the same situation. There are no bathrooms anywhere. And if I had ever been close to home, the, the thought would have crossed my mind too of like, God, this is ridiculous. Like, why does there have to be such like socioeconomic, you know, limitation on being able to use a bathroom. I wouldn't have done it, but it could have crossed my mind um, because it's frustrating. and It's hard to see people suffer. So maybe there's that. Maybe she is able to say, oh, my gosh, I just invited a client into my apartment. Wow. OK, I need to go talk about this right now. Clearly, this is not good. Um, but at that point, has any real harm occurred? Not really. I mean, it, it's possible that she's starting down that path, but um, and should she not work with him further? Probably not. Uh, but um, a significant boundary violation in my mind probably hasn't quite quite happened. Where do we where else could it be turned around? What about in supervision? With the missing notes? Depending on what we're trying to avoid, the point of no return is actually can, could be quite late in this situation. Um, if the, the if we're trying to say, could Kaylee keep her job? Could she continue to work with him? I think those the points move further back, further back, and further back. But the worst point is where um, then truly unethical behavior that compromises uh, Scott's safety and wellness and well-being that causes harm has potentially occurred. And that's our last bullet point. Right. Yeah. I don't know at what point, like maybe on the first slide, she could have become aware of things and continue to work with them. That's a question we all have to deal with. If you personally, or if you have colleagues that ever go through this, like, is it something you can um, become aware of and say, okay, got it. I see what's going on here. Figure out what's feeding into that. What is it counter transference? Is it 
you know, what, what is going on there? What, what's real? Is it that you are, you know, so maybe like Kayla feeling uh, isolated and you get along with a client, um, figure out what's going on there, problem solve it, fix it. Maybe they could continue to work together once that uh, clarity is reached. Possibly, possibly not though. Okay. Get more supervision. Um, I just went through a client crossing boundaries with the staff. Yeah. Also something um, that we're not quite, we're not quite um, talking about how Scott is contributing to the situation. We're not even addressing it or sort of giving that narrative. Um, and it, this certainly happens too. Uh, who is in, who is responsible in the end? It, it always falls on the provider um, to navigate the boundaries and maintain the boundaries. Um, but at times it, the energy or sort of the initiation that's coming from another side. Yeah. All right. And so we see the dual relationship has evolved to likely a romantic one. And this last question here is not really worth discussing, but I think we're trying to point out that Kayla's value system would have would have been helpful for her to maybe consider and evaluate. It might have helped her align. Um, she's got a strong value of social justice. Um, and it, it encouraged the evolution of the dual relationship, sure. Uh, could it also, because within social justice, justice in, that involves maintaining healthy and ethical boundaries, the clients that we're serving, um, perhaps if she had done some values clarification work uh, or considered that more deeply, she might have gotten on a different path. Um, we don't know. All right, any other comments on this this scenario? Any other questions you would raise? So Elizabeth, I just wanted to, go back to what you were talking about with the missing progress notes. Like that's mm. such a good opportunity for both Kayla to notice that she's doing something different with this client by not doing the note. You know, that's another opportunity where she could have, you know, yeah. um, thought, okay, if I can't write a note about this, this might be a problem. I need to talk to somebody and maybe it's not, her supervisor after she didn't feel supported previously maybe it's someone else she mm -hmm. trusts and they can help her uh get back into the reality of the situation that's both you know becoming more unethical and also fighting against her own value system of social justice if you kind of zoom out like you were saying absolutely right many moments for her to catch this okay oh some other comments here Perhaps she needs her own interventions and therapy. She wasn't detached objective enough to be of service to Scott. Yeah. I often think of like in the past when I would uh, take clients to lunch as like a, and the note would be socialization. So that was within like the, just the context and the billable note options uh, that I was working in that it was, it was not odd to go to lunch and practice like what it was like to be in like a, you know, a little diner cafe and order, pay a bill, things like that. Those were just daily living skills and social skills that um, could be worked on. And I also would think sometimes when I heard other, other team members talking about doing that, that I was like, well, did you all just like, were you working on the skills or were you just like having a good time and um, looking at their notes in comparison? And I, I always thought about that of like, well, what is that then? Is that just like, is, are you just having a good time and is that a service or like, how do you differentiate in some, in some instances between providing a service and just interacting with someone? Um, and I, I think that's a really helpful uh, thing to be aware of when you're working with someone and it is maybe uh, if it is sort of 
you're spending eight hours in a social security office or something like that. What are you doing with the conversations? Are you still making them sort of productive and, and centered around the treatment plan and what, what, what your role is versus, um, you know, just talking and relating? There's a place for that for sure. Um, but there needs to be a purpose in everything that's done that fits into, um, the guidelines of the services you, your team and program offer. Great point. She started to place her life possibly in jeopardy. Yeah. Um, huge risk that she takes by doing, by inviting a client in, um, in both directions, right? Um, it's, uh, this is not a training on sort of safety in the field, um, but hopefully, and we do have plenty of those trainings, so I encourage you to explore them. Um, but getting in isolated places uh, with clients is not what we should, anyone should be doing. Okay, just thinking with supervisors, having a caseload and supervising people, maybe it was an oversight. Her behavior changes, things don't happen in isolated situations like in the vignette. Not to excuse the supervisor, but just thinking of the supervision oversight possibility. Yeah, it's this feels like a runaway train that someone should have caught. Um, someone, someone should have caught, unless Kayla is like a master sort of actress um, and, you know, did a really good job of putting on a face and dodging the feedback or dodging some oversight. Uh, we would think that the supervisor would have caught this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we wanted to wrap up with a meditation to sort of clear the brain space um, from a topic that is not as pleasant to think about and really appreciate you all uh, exploring it with us um, and doing the hard work of considering uh, this is a potential reality because this is the just learning and engaging authentically in this type of training is doing ethical work. Um, so thank you for that. All right, and if folks don't wanna participate in this, you certainly don't have to. If you don't like listening to guided meditations for any reason, uh, you can just take a break, grab some water. Uh, we'll still wrap up at three. We'll give you a little bit of a suggested assignment after this meditation, so just stick around for the very end. But this will just be a few minutes. Um, so I would suggest that you find a relaxed and comfortable position um, seated on a chair, or if you so choose, a cushion on the floor if you're in an environment that has that. Um, you can uh, put your hands wherever is comfortable um, and sit up, sit back, uh, shoulders down. Um, you don't have to have a perfectly straight back. This is not that type of meditation. <laughs> Just be comfortable. Um, all right, so you can notice your body from the inside. Notice the shape of your body, the weight and touch, and just let yourself relax and become curious. Seated here, the sensations of your body, the connection with the floor and the chair, and try to relax any areas of tightness or tension and just breathe and soften. And now begin to tune into your breath and your body, feeling the natural flow of breath. You don't need to do anything to your breath, not, not long, not short, just natural. And notice where you feel your breath in your body. It might be in your abdomen, it might be in your chest or your throat. 
or in your nostrils. And see if you can feel the sensations of breath, one breath at a time. When one breath ends, the next breath begins. Now, as you do this, you might notice that your mind may start to wander. You may start thinking about other things. If this happens, this is not a problem. It's very natural. Just notice that your mind has wandered. You can say thinking or wandering in your head softly. And then gently redirect your attention right back to the breathing. Now, begin to notice if you are holding on to some difficult emotions, such as worry about the future or uneasiness about the past, and understand that every human body bears stress and worry throughout the day. Now, offer yourself goodwill because of what you're holding in your body right now. And you can say the following phrases to yourself softly and gently. May I be safe. May I be peaceful. May I be kind to myself. May I accept myself as I am. And if your mind has wandered, just return to the words or the emotion that you're holding in your body and go slow. You can name the emotion or you can find it in the physical body and soften that area. Then when you're comfortable, return to the phrases. May I be safe. May I be peaceful. May I be kind to myself. May I accept myself as I am. Finally, take a few breaths and just sit quietly in your own body. And know that you can return to the phrases anytime you wish during the rest of your day. May I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be kind to myself, may I accept myself as I am. Okay, thank you all for taking the time for this little practice today. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and adjust to your surroundings. And we'll wrap up our training. Okay, now that everyone's probably a little sleepy, or uh, hopefully relaxed. Um, here are some suggestions for skill building for the remaining couple weeks. <laughs> uh, our next meeting will be October 27th. Uh, we'd suggest you check out all the handouts and the link that were shared. So the values clarification worksheet um, by Russ Harris. Um, the ProCall assessment. Uh, also, the ProCall site has a bunch of uh, self-care tools, um, informative resources that are worth checking out. All right. Also, Patricia Burke's self-care plan. Um, and feel free to share these with your teammates, of course. Uh, we also would suggest that you notice moments when you're uncomfortable with a client or colleague and how you're communicating. Um, we want to stay aware of what's coming up in ourselves and our relationships with our clients, and we want to also stay aware of how 
what we're bringing to the table with our teammates. Um, are we creating a safe and supportive environment that's free of judgment? Um, where, and if we are experiencing things like compassion fatigue or burnout or counter-transference with teammates even, that we're sort of putting some effort in um, as strongly as we would with our clients, you know, um, to maintain a strong team environment. Um, number four, reflect on the problematic reactions to boundary strain and think on identifying a couple examples from your past, or it could be like yourself or someone else um, if you haven't experienced these yourself. Um, and maybe practice compassion for someone who you think has crossed a boundary, client or colleague. Uh, try on what it would be like to um, find compassion for how they got to where they were and what might have been going on with them that was behind the scenes or if you know what was going on. Um, usually when people uh, make mistakes and do things that harm others or, you know, violate a boundary or cross a boundary in, this, in the case of this assignment, um, they're not they're not an evil person. Um, they probably were having a hard time with something or were underinformed or had gotten otherwise impacted by stress. Um, so wherever you can find that compassion, it's a good practice to go there. And then finally, discuss with your team how to handle colleague boundary crossings. Um, that's a big conversation. Again, this should be like a whole separate training. Um, but what what are the expectations from your supervisor when something like this comes up? If you ever hear of one, um, what what would your supervisor like you to do um, so that you feel empowered to make the right decision ethically yourself as well? If you are um, just hearing of something like this occurring. All right. Um, as always, we have our uh, case managers learning exchange as an option for, to get some consultation and support, as well as our um, uh, Wellbeing Wednesday self-care break. Um, oh my goodness, what else? I mean, yeah, go to our uh, learning center. Um, we can check out some learning communities that we now have set up that are um, online forums uh, for where you can interact sort of like in a kind of like a Facebook page, um, discuss, share things, share resources. Uh, we'll make posts on there as well. And those sort of match on to some of these ongoing meetings that we have, like the Case Managers Learning Exchange or um, Wellbeing Wednesday. I think, I think that one has one. Anyway, uh, we suggest it doesn't. <laughs> Not yet, but it will in 2023. Okay, great. Um, or if you're a supervisor, we have a supervisor's learning exchange. Those are great opportunities to meet with your, your colleagues uh, from across teams um, and uh, get some consultation, support, resources, et cetera. All right. We will see you all in two weeks. Thanks so much, as always. You're a wonderful group, and we really look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks for our last day. Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. You've been such a pleasure to interact with, and I've really appreciated your participation. So thanks so much.